Look, I'm grateful you found this podcast. But if you're listening to this because you think you might belong here, then my advice would be to stop right away. Listening to The Half-Blood Hill Show will only burden you with knowledge and insight about the riot inverse that will make you more of a target. After all, as we've been told, once you know the truth, then it's only a matter of time before they sense it too. And they'll come for you. But perhaps you're already known to them. And in that case, you've come to the right place. Join me, your host, Jared Shaw, as we dive deeply into the works of Rick Riordan, chapter by chapter, here on the Half-Blood Hill Show. So strap on your celestial bronze armor, sharpen your wit, and let the quest begin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the Half-Blood Hill Show here on YouTube. And if Podcastle does its job, everywhere else that carries podcasts. I am so excited to be here shooting the first episode with all of you. If you could not guess by the introduction, this is a podcast dedicated to fans of Rick Riordan, where I, who am a huge fan of Rick Riordan, am going to go back through his works, some of which I have read over and over and over again, and others that this will be my first time reading through, and just really touching on interesting things that I find, theories, foreshadowing, plot points that become relevant, and just sharing this overall joy that I have with these book series with all of you. So if you are a fan of Rick Riordan's work, this is the podcast for you. We are going to be starting, of course, today with the first book, the one that started the Riordan verse, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. And when I think about my history with this book, it's it, it always uh, warms my heart. I was not a big reader. I had a lot of struggles with reading with my ADHD and dyslexia, but I remember that this book coming out, all of my friends were reading it, and I wanted to, you know, know what was going on. I had just read Chamber of Secrets. I ended up having to watch the first Harry Potter, uh, Potter, Harry Potter movie because it was kind of difficult for me to get through. Watched the movie, then read Chamber of Secrets, then went back to read Sorcerer's Stone. So I just started really reading. But then I got introduced to the Percy Jackson series, and it shaped so much of my childhood. So even just looking at the cover of this book, just it's not the one that I had growing up. Obviously, it's a copy I bought so I could like mark it all up and take notes and stuff. But it just I don't know. It brings back it brings a certain joy to me when I just did the thought of getting to go through it and read. So I thought that the best way to really go about this show would be to start with a overview of the chapter. And then to go in page by page and talk about things that stuck out to me and why they stuck out to me. So let's start with the summary. So this chapter starts with us being introduced to Percy, or rather Percy introducing himself to us as a troubled kid and giving us a warning about something called half-bloods and a mysterious they. We then cut to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where Percy is on a class trip with his school for troubled kids called Yancey Academy, with his pre-algebra teacher, Mrs. Dodds, and his favorite teacher, Mr. Brunner, who teaches Latin at the school. Uh, they are exploring the Greco-Roman section of the Met, and we see that Percy does have some genuine interest in the material, but is being distracted by the bully of his class, Nancy Bobafit. Percy actually has many near altercations with Nancy throughout this chapter as she is bullying his best friend Grover, 
a seemingly cowardly and unfortunately physically disabled student that Percy has befriended. One of these altercations actually leads to Percy having to answer one of Mr. Brunner's questions about the Titan King Kronos, which Percy is actually somewhat able to answer, but is struggling to understand the myth's real-life application yet. They dismiss for lunch after that, and while getting lunch, Nancy bullies Grover one time too many and ends up mysteriously in a fountain, allegedly pushed by Percy, but Percy has no recollection of doing this. He ends up being called out by Mrs. Dodds, who, and is terrified when, instead of detention, Mrs. Dodds turns into a sort of monster. Randomly, Mr. Brunner, who has been wheelchair-bound, rolls into the Greco-Roman Museum where this altercation is happening, throws Percy a sword, and on instinct, Percy vaporizes Mrs. Dodds. However, the weird thing is, when Percy returns to the bus, nobody, not even Mr. Brunner, claims to remember a Mrs. Dodds ever existing. And I think that that is just such an interesting concept for an introductory chapter. Of course, we know that this is a story about Greek and Roman mythology interacting with the real world, so using the Met as the place where the stage is being set for the story is fantastic, but I also love the mystery it immediately sets up with questions like, who was Mrs. Dodds? Rather, what was Mrs. Dodds? And why is it that when Mrs. Dodds disappears, nobody can remember her? Along with smaller mysteries like, how did Nancy end up in the water? What is that sword that Mr. Brunner just threw him? And again, going back to the intro, who are half-bloods? And is Mrs. Dodds one of those mysterious theys? With all of that, though, let's get into some of the stuff that I noted in this chapter as unique or interesting. Because I there was a lot of stuff that I underlined, quoted, and just want to talk about because... I think that it's really, really cool the way Ryernan sets up this whole universe he's going to build in this chapter. So I want to actually return to start with the first page and once again focus on Percy's line. Look, I didn't want to be a half-blood. If you're reading this because you think you might be one, my advice is close this book right now. Believe whatever lie your mom or dad told you about your birth and try to lead a normal life. I've always found that that has to be one of the most gripping paragraphs to start a story I've read in a while. It just has you asking so many questions. And I have never read a story where the first, basically, first couple lines of the story tell you, do not read it. I think that that's so, like, it just works something on your psychology where you're like, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to read this book whether you want me to or not. And I think that that is just, I don't know, I've always been entertained by that. The other line that I read earlier, but I want to bring more attention to, is the believe whatever lie your mom or dad told you and try to live a normal life. Um, it's either later in this book or maybe in the, hey, or maybe in the Titan's Curse, I believe, that it's said that most mortals don't know the other parent is a god. I think the exceptions are Sally, Maria D'Angelo, and Thalia and Jason's mom. I think that May, Luke Castellan's mom, also knows that knows in some regard that it's Hermes, but it seems that in general, knowing, at least at first, can be a pretty bad thing 
for partners of gods. The other thing that it makes me think about is, do all gods tell their partner when the child is born about Camp Half-Blood? My thought is actually no, um, at least not in most cases, but I believe at least children of the big three are typically told. Like, we know that Hades tried to get Nico and Bianca to safety before Zeus basically smites Maria. And we also know that Poseidon specifically told Sally and that Thalia, I believe, was claimed on the run since she had Aegis and was led to Luke by Zeus, trying to point her the right way to Camp Half-Blood. I think that otherwise, the gods kind of are just like hands off and they rely on the satyrs or Chiron to guide them. But it is, you know, it does make me wonder, like, if you were a child of, let's say, who's not considered like a super, I mean, they're all in the Olympians, but like, let's say you're Demeter and your scent is not as strong. Do you think that it is common for the parent to be all like, even once they know, or if they ever know, to lie to their child about who their parents are? Or do you think they'd try to get them to Camp Half-Blood as soon as possible? I have to believe they don't, because we know Annabeth gets there very young, and that's an outlier, which I think would not be the case if most parents knew about Camp Half-Blood and sent their kids there. This page also introduces my absolute favorite trope when it comes to fiction, and maybe it's a little... You know, like, it's not the biggest thing in the world. But for me, I always love the reluctant hero. Not so much like the anti-hero, but the reluctant hero of, if I could stop being the hero today, I would. And the fact that I have to do this because I don't have an option is the only reason why I'm here. I just feel like that is a much more relatable type of hero than someone like, let's say, Harry Potter, who, like, willingly walks to his death in order to save everybody at the end of his series... I'm just, I, like, I love that person. He's like, does anyone else want to be the child of prophecy? Nico, uh, Thalia, any, anyone? Anyone want to do this? No? Okay, it's me. Damn it. Like, I just think that it's, I think that that just creates such an authentic type of hero that I, I really, really enjoy. And then, of course, running close to the last line of this page that I really do want to talk about, which is the, am I a troubled kid? And later in the pages, uh, it talks a little bit about those school trips that I talked about that that went wrong. And so one of them, I took a, I took note of two that pop up that did pop out to me. So the first is the one where, uh, and before that, at my fourth grade school, when we took a behind the scenes tour of the Marine World Shark Pool, I sort of hit the wrong lever on the catwalk and our class took an unplanned swim. And one thing that kind of popped out to me is one love the foreshadowing kind of in this one about who Percy's parent is and two I think that it's odd and maybe he does and he doesn't recall it but I would have imagined that Percy could probably hear the uh, sharks if there were sharks in there of course we don't know for sure but I imagine there was and like it would be cool if he ever remembered oh yeah I could hear sharks but maybe I was like panicked and I didn't know but maybe that would also be giving too much away about his parentage there and the next one that really really bothers me actually still to this day is where it talks about the let's see like in my fifth grade school when we went to the Saratoga battlefield I had hit I had this accident with the revolutionary war cannon I wasn't aiming for the school bus but of course I got expelled anyway um 
First of all, two thoughts. One reminds me of the Son of Neptune, where Percy manipulates the water cannons. But if those are actually just like genuine cannons and not water cannons, I have to say that's on the school and the Saratoga battlefield, not on Percy. Because one, why is that cannon loaded? Like, why, why would they? Why would they have preloaded cannons? What are they doing if they're not doing a guided demonstration? Why do they have them loaded? And two. How did you fail to notice a kid was playing with a cannon? Like, I've done school field trips before, and the teacher is so stressed watching those kids all the time. I cannot imagine, like, just not seeing one of my kids walking towards a cannon ready to blow it up. And I've been on field trips with, like, where I'm responsible for, like, 30 kids. I know for a fact that that teacher must have been asleep to not notice that. Because I would have been immediately, what are you doing? You are going to get all of us in so much trouble. You're going to make me lose my job. You're coming back here. So, you know what, Percy? Not on you for that one. Um, it also, interestingly, this line of like, am I a troubled kid is super contradictory. Because a troubled kid probably would not be giving you this warning to stay out of danger. Um, in the paragraph right above it, literally, Percy is warning us to close the book, leave, don't read any further, because once you know what you are, monsters are going to come for you. And that hardly seems like something a troubled or bad kid would do. So it instantly makes us realize that, like, Percy's view of himself is not necessarily the most accurate view of himself from the outside world. Like, the people he surrounds himself with and the people who know him know that he's not a troubled kid. He just gets into... Or what is it that, like, Harry says, uh, it's not that I'm looking to get into trouble. Trouble just seems to find me. And I think that that is more of what Percy really means to be saying instead of him taking the blame on himself. But it does show a little bit about Percy's character where he will always believe that things are his fault, whether they are or not. Now I kind of want to talk about the field trip itself. And Percy writes, uh, how, did he, how does he put this? Um... He says, May, when our sixth grade trip took a field trip to Manhattan, 28 mental case kids and two teachers on a yellow school bus heading to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to look at ancient Greek and Roman stuff. If you are the, like, coordinator of this trip with this school, would you do that? I don't know if I would do that. If, like, I know that these kids have come from basically a alternative juvenile school, I don't know if I'm letting them into the Met. I gotta be honest with you. As, as someone who's trying to keep their job, I probably would have been like, maybe maybe not here. Maybe get a track record of not doing crazy stuff, and then you can come back here. Because there's a lot of expensive stuff here. But one thing that it does do is that I always found this a brilliant and like unassuming trip to the museum to be a really great way of introducing us to the world of this book. Percy Jackson is, of course, an urban fantasy where Greco-Roman gods influence our known world. And I think the way Riordan uses a museum as the backdrop for all of this to start, like by, and you know, like he's how he starts dropping bread comes for the crumbs for the world building is just a really genius use of the setting, particularly the way he introduces the story of the gods um, with the Titan Kronos, it shows that Percy is paying attention and knows something about mythology, but not everything. It kind of reminds me how in The Witcher, Geralt is a strong character. He's just not the strongest character. In this one, it shows that Percy knows something. He just doesn't know everything. 
And as a history teacher, this comes up a little bit later, but I also love the question of how are we going to use this in real life? Because I know that Rick Riordan was a teacher before becoming a hugely successful author. And it really shows how much he understands the way students treat information, which is I'm going to really kind of like discard or push this to the side or just memorize it for the sake of a test if it has nothing to do with anything I perceive I'm going to use in real life. We also were introduced to Mr. Brunner as the Latin teacher. And Chiron learned learning Latin, Chiron being fluent in Latin enough to teach it, makes me wonder about was that an ability that came when the power shifted from Greece to Rome? Let me clarify here. We know that the gods moved to where the center of power in the world is, and that's why they were in America at the time of this writing. And so while they used to be in Greece, when Greece fell to Rome, they moved to Rome and became a Roman versions of themselves. That's the Jupiter, the Neptune, the Mercuries, all, all, you know, so on and so forth. And so I'm wondering if that is where Chiron learns Latin, like he becomes a trainer of the Roman demigods because the power has shifted to Rome. Um, and so... I get more of this idea from a couple lines here where Brunner took one long, sad look at the stele like he had been to this girl's funeral. And given that this is in the, you know, he's speaking Latin, they're in like the Greco-Roman section of the wing. Percy is talking about the stele being surrounded by Roman armor and weapons. And I'm wondering if that girl was a Roman demigod that Chiron trained rather than a Greek one. I think that would just be a real interesting dive into like further further theorizing, which is, was Chiron responsible for training demigods before Lupa took over? And how often did they keep tabs on each other even after agreeing to keep the camp separate? Of course, in Heroes of Olympus, we learn that Camp Jupiter and the uh, Greek camp, Camp Half-Blood, were meant to be kept apart particularly due to, I believe the canon is like the civil war was like on the basis of Greek and Roman demigods were fighting on each side to fight. And so I'm wondering, was it because of that action that they were kept apart? And before that, how often were they communicating or interacting with one each other, with one another? Um, I would have also loved a mention on if any of the Roman armor or weapons that Percy sees were imperial gold. I think that it's kind of inspired me to go back and rewatch the first episode of the show to see if I can find any hints of it, because I think that would be such a cool little Easter egg to be like, no, 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 that's Imperial gold. Like maybe it is like a bunch of like standard steel Roman gladiuses, but occasionally you'll see something that hints to the fact that whereas the Greek demigods use celestial bronze, the Roman demigods use Imperial gold to kill monsters. And I think that that would just be an awesome implication of if that was actually happening in the story right now. So kind of returning back to what I was saying earlier, where Percy Jackson is this urban fantasy series heavily influenced by Greco-Roman mythology. One thing in Greco-Roman mythology is the idea of the fatal flaw, something that all heroes have that are taken advantage of and will oftentimes lead to their death. And much later in the story, we learn that Percy being a Greek hero has a fatal flaw, and we start to get hints of it through the text here. So, um, where was it? Grover was an easy target. 
He was scrawny. He cried when he got frustrated. He must have been held back several grades because he was the only sixth grader with acne and the start of a wispy beard on his chin. Next, Lexline says, uh, anyway, Nancy Boba Fett was throwing wads of sandwiches that stuck into his curly brown hair, and she knew I couldn't do anything back to her because I was on probation. The headmaster had threatened me with death by in-school suspension if anything bad, embarrassing, or even mildly entertaining happened on this trip. I'm going to kill her, I mumbled. I think that that, one, love the death by in-school suspension, um, because inspired by the idea of fatal flaws in Greek mythology, Percy is already getting hints of his own here, and the fact that, like, fatal being death by in-school suspension is hinted at here, uh, it could be demonstrating the fatal nature of Percy's flaw being excessive personal loyalty. Also, there is no way that Nancy does this just to Grover. Nancy is not a monster. He would, she would not have any reason to think that Grover in particularly deserves any extra, you know, bullying. But I like how Percy doesn't really care or mention really caring about other people Nancy might bully, only the people close to him. It kind of reminds me of the comparison between Jason Grace and Percy, one of whom by all accounts is this willing hero. And the other is basically punching a clock, trying to do his job because no one else can do it for him, being severely reluctant, but will only step up to protect those that he actually cares about. And I just, I love the way that Rick Riordan already sets this up in book one, despite it not being revealed until, I believe, book three, that Percy's fatal flaw is excessive personal loyalty. Speaking a little bit more on some of Percy's characteristics, there. There's like a conception in the fandom that Percy is this somewhat sweet and sarcastic like meathead, which probably comes from him being paired up with one of the smartest people in the series. But there's a line in this chapter that I really enjoy, which is it's talking about Mr. Brunner leading the museum tour. And it says he rode up in front of his wheel. He rode up front in his wheelchair, guiding us through the big echoey galleries galleries past marble statues and glass cases full of really old black and orange pottery. It blew my mind that this stuff had survived for 2,000, no, 3,000 years. And the reason I like it is because that part of the text shows that Percy does have a natural curiosity and a desire to learn more about Greek mythology. He's not bored. He's not rolling his eyes. He's not like, oh, whatever, this sucks, whatever, I'm bored, like, let me just go and swim like he does have interest in things this is one of the few things that he actually is very interested in learning more about and i've always enjoyed that characteristic where it's like he's not just here to swing swords at monsters he is somewhat somewhat competent when it comes to the greek and roman mythologies he's just not the most competent like someone like annabeth who knows all of this like the back of her hand uh another thing that is noted, that I underlined immediately. And I don't know how important it is, but it talks about, it builds on this idea that Percy is trying to learn. And it was, I was trying to listen to what he had to say because it was kind of interesting, but everyone around me was talking. And every time I told them to shut up, the other teacher chaperone, Mrs. Dodds, would give me the evil eye. And so knowing the context of this book being very Greco-Roman, um, I thought the word choice for evil eye here was fitting, especially because at this moment, Percy is already cursed with an accusation about him being, of course, as the title suggests, the lightning thief. And um, it's possibly caused out of this jealousy 
from Zeus regarding Percy's role in the prophecy and the faith of it and the fate of his own daughter. So it's this theme of jealousy and the big three gods being jealous of one another manifesting in the servants of them in this case mrs dodds was a really cool touch don't think he meant that much by it but you know i'm being the typical teacher being like oh look how deeply into this text and what did he mean by that but if he didn't mean that i think that was really cool and i'm glad i reread it and caught that because it was very interesting to me also as a teacher hilarious um this next sign is hilarious miss dodds was this little math teacher from georgia who always wore a black leather jacket even though she was 50 years old she looked mean enough to ride a harley right into your locker and she had come to yancey halfway through the year when our last math teacher had a nervous when our last math math teacher i didn't even realize that had a nervous breakdown and you know what as a teacher i get it okay i get it it can be stressful being a teacher but the reason that I underlined this that I thought was kind of interesting and funny was um, I don't know how much of a comic book fan Riordan is, but every time I read this, I think of the antihero Ghost Rider, which I think is appropriate given who Mrs. Dodds is and who she works for. I also think it is hilarious that so typically in schools, kids' least favorite subject tends to be math. And I love how Riordan played with that concept and made the math teacher the first introductory villain of the story. I also remember that it, it kind of like reminded me of, I would sneak this book into geometry class with me and read it. And I was always afraid that the math teacher was going to see me and take it from me. And so like, it just, this idea of this math teacher being these villains in these kids' lives is like when I put myself back into like my sixth grade mind, I'm like, yeah, I, I did see my math teacher as my personal villain because it was always the hardest subject for me to grasp and understand. And so I, I always found that play on the, the, the topic, the trope of the math teacher being the hardest teacher or the, the meanest teacher in the school, um, really entertaining. Although in Percy's case, she is right because one time, in the text it says, one time after she'd made me erase answers out of an old maths workbook until midnight i told grover i didn't think miss dodds was human and then he responds you're absolutely right and so it's a great little bit of foreshadowing of what's going to happen in this book and the fact that it's just like yeah no percy may not have known she was a she was a monster in the literal greek sense but she knew he knew that something was up with her which is you know good because chiron and grover don't realize that for a while either somehow she's managed to hide um her true identity from them for some time and so i just love this little book of uh, this little foreshadowing here but what really made me like underline this was what uh like what a horrific punishment of having to go through and erase all the work in a math textbook it also makes me wonder how broke is this school because ostensibly parents are paying for their kids to be at this fancy boarding school so they're making money and ain't that just like a school system to say, instead of buying new workbooks, we're going to make kids erase the entire, uh, erase all the all the work from the workbooks and then use it for next year. It just like, I don't know why, but it kind of reminds me of the scene from The Simpsons where itchy, it's the Itchy and Scratchy case and they're looking for a really old projector to play this like super eight footage of like of the first itchy and scratchy cartoon and they're like where are we going to find a place with something old with with a projector old enough to play this and they cut to the elementary school like it just reminds like i just love that 
I don't know if like again, I don't know if Riordan means it means means to be doing it, but I love that he touches on like the cheap-ish nature of the school systems in America and just how a punishment is going to erase these books so that they can be used again in the future. I just that was so funny to me. So going back to this idea of Percy trying to learn, we see this interaction where Mr. Brunner is pointing to one of the frames on a stele and is, talk, is asking the students about the story of Kronos. And because Percy is trying to learn and he's being distracted, he yells at Nancy again. This time he gets caught and um, has to kind of explain the story of Kronos and uh, Kronos eating his kids. And the first thing that made me think of was, I think it was in episode five of the Percy Jackson show where Aries comments about how messed up the Olympian family was even from the beginning. And this is where I'm really going to pay attention in this read through for, because when I read Chalice of the Gods, which I reviewed on this channel as a separate video, I noted that Riordan was leaning a lot harder into the idea that the gods were not good people. And I didn't always get that impression that it was so anti anti the gods in the original five books. And I'm wondering if my perception was wrong because I read it when I was younger or if that was genuinely a tone switch that he made. But I, I always, ever since that episode came out, I found that interesting. And with Childs of the Gods coming out and then the new Percy Jackson book set to come out, I think, next year. It is something that I'm keeping my eye on for, which is how does Riordan choose to represent the god, all the gods, not just the quote-unquote bad or violent gods, but all the gods in this book and his series moving forward. Um, it's also a very interesting way, the story of having Percy tell the story of Kronos eating his kids. Um, it's a very interesting way of introducing us to the big bad of the series. Although one thing that I believe is actually missing from this story, and I don't think it ever gets truly, truly brought up, is like an understanding of why the titans rule would be a bad thing and why the gods taking over was a good thing for mankind because from what i researched most of the time when the titans interacted with mankind they were typically in beneficial ways such as like prometheus and the birth of fire or otherwise they like kept to themselves whereas the olympian gods were out being absolute villains like yes Cronus was eating his kids but we're also not going to pretend like Athena didn't turn Medusa into a monster because Poseidon forced her, himself on her. Or Zeus eating his first wife, uh, Metis, I think. Yeah, Met it's either Metis or Metis. Um, because he thought that the child born from Metis would take over his rule. I mean, like, even in this book, Ares is trying to start an all-out war between the gods with horrific implications just because he wants to be stronger and active wars feed into his power. So it kind of makes me wonder if Titans might have been better for mankind overall. Probably historically, I mean, it's all a myth, but probably in like the scope of history maybe, but not in the light that Riordan paints them in in this book because, or in his series, because the Titans are not typically portrayed as the best either. And so, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think that's one of the possible underlining themes of the book, is that there is no responsibility put on the gods to do anything. And so I think that that is just a really interesting question to explore as we get further and further into the books, and also knowing the responsibility that Percy charges them with at the end of the series. So... I like 
I don't know how to explain it. I just think that it now going back through it, it always makes me question with the, the, the idea of like how wrong was Luke really, you know, and that's something I'm interested in exploring as well. This next piece is more of like a question I'm throwing out to you guys as the audience. As Mr. Brunner is telling the story about the gods and the gods slicing up Kronos with his scythe and throwing him into Tartarus, it makes me wonder something. So in Heroes of Olympus, we know that the last villain of the Heroes of Olympus series was Gaia, a primordial god. And Gaia has a relationship with Tartarus, who is another primordial god. And so I'm wondering, is it possible for Tartarus to have gotten a human form or a physical form and do you think that rick riordan would ever consider a new series where tartarus is the new villain like i've always been interested in ever since you know percy meets tartarus and uh, i mean much later he will explore tartarus in detail but i'd be really cool in seeing them the campers at both camp half-blood and camp jupiter have to deal with a rising form of the pit of despair. I think that would just be a really, really unique and trying villain. And if, if like Raiden was ever truly done with the Greco-Roman world that he created, I think a battle against Tartarus would be one of the coolest ways to cap off the Percy Jackson world. On a less damp, on a less downer note, uh, Doofus is used in this text. It's the first time I've ever read Doofus in a book, and I think that it is objectively one of the funniest words to use in writing. It just, it is so childish that it makes sense for a 12-year-old to say it as an insult. I, it's just like, 2000 was this book that came out, 2007. The two early 2000s was like a time because I would crack up if I heard one of my students call another student Doofus. Instead of, like, you know, some of the awful stuff, they'll comment on each other now. Like, doofus is so, like, it's like a harmless word, but it is pretty funny. And I think that I just love that Percy writes it that way. So I mentioned earlier that Percy is able to answer the initial question about Kronos, but he's not able to answer the question regarding how this story will relate to him in real life. And Chiron writes... Something like, you must learn the answer to my questions, Mr. Brunner told me, about the Titans, about real life, and how your studies apply to it. And throughout the whole Percy Jackson series, Percy doesn't actually particularly study the history of the Titans. And so it makes me wonder if originally Riordan had plans of making this more of a complex through line of the series, maybe even making Percy consider what side was actually worth fighting for? Like, if he learned more about the Titans and if he learned more about the gods, would that ever shake his core belief of who he wanted to fight for? I would probably say no, because he would only change sides if everyone he cared about at Camp Hafla changed sides. But until then, he's not really fighting for the gods or the Titans. He doesn't really care about either. He's more fighting for his friends and their safety. And so I wonder... You know, if like Ryan never considered it, but thought it would be irrelevant. But I think it would have been really cool to see Percy have to explore both sides and then make the choice to stand with the gods like as a knowing choice rather than an obligative, like a, like a choice made out of obligation. The other thing is that Percy says, or the response that Percy has internally is, 
but Brenner expected me to be as good as everyone else, despite the fact that I have dyslexia and attention deficit disorder, and I've never made above a C- in my life. No, he didn't expect me to be as good. He expected me to be better, and I just couldn't learn all those names and facts, much less spell them correctly. And the first thought I had was, thankfully, Percy is paired up with somebody who loves to do that. My second initial thought was, secondly, how much does Chiron and, or how much does, yeah, how much about Percy does Chiron already know? I believe it's like stated in canon that Chiron hopes Percy is just a child of a minor god, but that doesn't really make that much sense because it's only because of his strong scent that Chiron is even at Yancey Academy to begin with. Like Grover lets Chiron know there's something up here and then Chiron goes there. Also, kind of tangentially related, but minor gods don't start getting recognized as like campers. Or I guess they could be campers, but they don't start getting their own cabins until after the first series, after Last Olympian. So does that mean that if a minor god's child did manage to make it to Camp Half-Blood or found the need to go to Camp Half-Blood, they'd all live in Hermes' cabin? And then tangentially from that, which is, how big is Hermes' cabin? Like, is it the biggest? I, I cannot remember. I'd love to see an image of it. Maybe I can find it. I'll Google search it. Is Hermes's cabin the largest because if not it definitely needs to be it is the largest oldest and most worn looking cabin due to its former use as a home for all unclaimed or homeless demigods its dull brown paint is chipped off and there is actually a caduceus overhanging the door hermes cabin is packed at all times okay so yeah it is oh it is the biggest cabin but how big must it have been you know to how many people were there at once i do wonder like what was the highest capacity the cabin ever had and how many of those kids never went on to be claimed until after the last olympian but speaking of percy's parentage on page eight it talks about how overhead a huge storm was brewing with clouds blacker than i had ever seen over the city i figured maybe it was global warming or something because the weather all across new york state had been weird since christmas we had a massive snowstorm, flooding, wildfires from lightning strikes. I wouldn't have been surprised if a hurricane was blowing in. So first, notation of things being weird since Christmas. We know that is when the Master Bolt gets stolen. We know that is where Luke conducts his plan of taking it. What did make me wonder, which it kind of goes on to support that point I was making earlier, which is, are the gods worth saving? Because we know that this is a result of Poseidon and Zeus fighting over the Master Bolt. But both of them know that they themselves could not have taken it, and they are causing a massive amount of destruction because of this. And so the first question I wondered is, are no other gods trying to intervene and stop this, or are they picking sides like the Trojan War? Additionally, this book gaslights you like crazy because it kind of puts this idea that Poseidon and Zeus are on equal footing but unfortunately the myth would say Zeus would dog walk Poseidon so it would not have been that much of a fight you got to remember Zeus was taking down the titans by himself and so it is always interesting to me that way that this book does a little bit of revisionist history to the myths of making the big three all seem very equal to each other which you know makes more f makes makes the story more fun but is not actually in line with anything that the myths project regarding Zeus's power. It also kind of makes me wonder 
like it kind of makes me believe that the reason Chalice of the Gods, Percy, is so much more critical of the gods is that in those books, he is around the same age as Luke was when he turned against the gods. And like maybe at some point you just like mature out of this. He's my dad. I want to help him out. Like maybe at some point you just lose your patience with the gods and their nonsense especially when you don't have anyone to keep you grounded. Like Percy had the added benefit of Annabeth and Grover and his mom, who was the best character in the series outside of the big, outside of the trio, you know, really reminding him to like, stay good, stay like, like stay positive, keep doing the right things. Luke didn't have that. And, you know, it really does continue to buy into this fact of like, how, how, like, how wrong, once again, how wrong was Luke for doing that? Because if their response to an item going missing is to cause so much devastation that we don't know. And I mean, obviously it's not mentioned in this like child book, but like hurricanes, storms, giant like, you know, uh, blizzards, all of these things that are happening, that came with some human toll, like human human life tolls. And the gods, for the most part, from what we know, aren't really doing anything about it. They're just letting this chaos continue. So, you know, it's clear that the gods value their items of power far more than the people that at one point they were supposed to be the protectors of. And I just love this like hinting of like, now that Percy is older, now that Percy has a better understanding of the world, of the gods, how they operate, it makes that it makes him far more critical of those god of those same gods, including his own father. And so, you know, I just love that touch that Ryernan put into the series moving forward. But speaking of Sally. The next page gives us our introduction into quite possibly the best parental figure in fiction. I watched the stream of cabs going down Fifth Avenue and thought about my mom's apartment only a little ways uptown from where we sat. I hadn't seen her since Christmas. I wanted so bad to jump in a taxi and head home. She'd hug me and be glad to see me, but she'd be disappointed too. She'd send me right back to Yancey, remind me that I had to try harder, even if this was my sixth school in six years, and I was probably going to be kicked out again. I wouldn't be able to stand the sad look she'd give me. Even without her presence there to speak a word. The way Percy, and by extension Rick Riordan, portrays her in that paragraph makes you feel the love shared between the two so vividly. Percy does not want to disappoint his mom out of this tremendous amount of love that she he has for her and we know the type of person that percy is and so just like the fact that he was willing to do all of these things for grover just off the bat it really just shows how great the love between sally and percy must be without even introducing us yet to the amount of sacrifices that she makes for him Onto something a little less deep, but still someone who does care about Percy, Mr. Brunner, it is written that a red umbrella stuck up from the back of his chair, making him look like a motorized cafe table. And I don't think this gets talked about enough. We know that the wheelchair is a figment of the mist, okay? So we know that he's not actually in a wheelchair. He is a um, centaur, and the wheelchair is just the way that he hides this fact using the mist. So my question is, is he just holding an umbrella? Is the umbrella even there? Or like, like is he holding it with his tail? Why, why is it looking that way? I just have so many questions about this umbrella and this placement, and if it's really even an umbrella at all. And just like, 
what book is he reading that he doesn't notice the nonsense that is about to happen in this in this in this series? Like I've read a lot of good books, okay? But if at one point watery hands or like oh my god, jet of water flew out of a fountain, grabbed a student, and then threw him that student in the water, like happens in this page, I feel like I would have noticed. Like and especially when Miss Dodds materializes next to Percy and starts dragging him into the into the uh, museum again, like you would think that Mr. Brunner, who is there literally for Percy, he is not there for any other reason. He is there for Percy, would have done more to intercept him, which is where things start to get a little bit interesting regarding Mr. Brunner, which is why. Why, given what you know about Percy, how little you know about Percy, honestly, at this point, do you trust that this situation is going to go well for him? What I mean by that is that we know that eventually Mr. Brunner is going to show up, give Percy the sword, and then let him try to take out, take down Miss Dodds. But Miss Dodds is literally a fury, one of the monsters that put so much pressure on Thalia, a child of Zeus, that Zeus had to transform her into a pine tree. And this man is just, or this is, I mean, the centaur, whatever, is just letting this happen. Like, he's got to know at some point that something is up. And if this is a test, this is a risky, risky test. And kind of makes me question his, his, you know, his teaching style as a whole. Going back to that thing with the water grabbing it, grabbing her, like... This was actually something that disappointed me in the first episode of the Percy Jackson Disney series, where Percy kind of just like force pushes Nancy into the water instead of forcing the water to do what he wants. I think it kind of undercuts a little bit about the power that Percy has. However, what didn't disappoint me, at least in this book, was getting to see Grover's first major character moment. Um, Grover, despite everything we know about him being typically like cowardly, is willing more than once to put himself at risk to help Percy. He knows better than Percy that Mrs. Dodds isn't normal, but risks saying, uh, no, I'm the one that pushed her, um, in order to help get Percy out of a major jam. And this will come back later, where he'll do this again um, in a major way in the underworld. But like, I think that because this relationship is so profound in the book, the fact that Grover lies to get Percy kicked out of school in the TV show. I just wish there had been some other way to make that to to just I know they had to speed the episode along, but I just hate it because Grover and Percy are so tight. Like they watch each other's back all the time. And I just hated that the show did that to another thing that I didn't love from the show in the first episode, but didn't do find very interesting here which is the conflict between the confrontation between mrs dodds and percy and so in the book it says i then turned to face mrs dodds but she wasn't there she was standing at the museum entryway atop the steps gesturing impatiently at me to come on how did she get there so fast initially percy believes that this moment is caused by his adhd and that he was momentarily distracted but like this undoubtedly has to be a result of the mist. So I think we are to understand that Dodds in her fury form is flying towards the entrance and through the mist, it's looking like she's an Olympic speedwalker or something. But again, makes me ask, what is Brunner reading? Like what, what could he possibly be reading that miss like, he is not immediately intercepting Mrs. Dodds. Again, if this is a test, this is a very risky test for someone that you in your mind think could be the child of the prophecy. 
Like, I, to me, don't know if I'd ever run that gamble. But I am wondering if, like, maybe it is because Mr. Brunner does see the, the, through the mist of Miss Dodd's, like, materialization to the top of the staircase that puts him into action of following Percy. But I believe it's actually Grover that goes to warn Chiron. And then Chiron goes, sorry, Mr. Brunner, whatever you guys know, uh, Chiron to go intercept, uh, or give Percy the sword to be able to fight off Mrs. Dodds. Mrs. Dodds continues to be creepy on the next page where it says that Mrs. Mrs. Dodds stood with her arms crossed in front of a big marble frieze of the Greek gods. She was making this weird noise in her throat like growling. Even without the noise, I would have been nervous. It's weird being alone with the teacher, especially Mrs. Dodds. Something about the way she looked at the frieze as if she wanted to pulverize it. What is, like... Okay, from what I understand about the myth, the Furies, which Miss Dodds is, aka Electo, um, were actually born during the time of the Titans and are eventually hired by Hades to be his torturers in the field of punishment. So I kind of assumed that they enjoyed that position of being the torturers in the field of punishment as they were the representation of vengeance in Greek myth. But they seem to be so showing a certain hatred for the Greek gods. And that makes me wonder, are they just tired of doing the gods like dirty work, specifically when it comes to killing children of the big three? Or is this like they know that there's a chance that the Titan King could be resurrecting? Maybe they're aware of the prophecy regarding the fact that the Titans are rising and they're hedging their bets on the Titans coming back. I'm just very interested in why they have so much hatred for the gods in this scenario. And speaking of the big three, which are Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, if you do not remember, after during this confrontation, thunder strikes the building. And so I was under the impression Electo was sent by Hades. I believe that is confirmed, but perhaps Zeus is watching this altercation and that thunder is almost like a sign of support of what's about to happen. While Percy is trying to apologize and get out of the situation, he mentions that he's worried that Mrs. Dodds has found the illegal stash of candy. And I only read, noticed this on the read-through, but I did I did write in my margins, like mother, like son. However, it probably... Because Sally, Sally works at this candy store. However, it likely wouldn't be Sally's candy um, because Percy would appreciate that too much, the blue candy. But we can't appreciate the entrepreneurial spirit, though. Percy was trying to make some money. I respect it. I also think that the altercation that's happening perfectly characterizes how Percy thinks even in a stressful moment he has this one line that's always made me laugh which is or maybe they'd realized I'd gotten my essay on Tom Sawyer from the internet without ever reading the book and now they were going to take away my grade or worse they were going to make me read the book and I love the I just the way that Ryden keeps Percy in character all the time it's something I struggle with when I write where it's like, oh, but I want him to act this way, but that's not the way they would actually act in their character. I love the way that, like, Ryan keeps Percy consistent. He's never, like, he's, it's always this very sarcastic undertone or this very, like, comedically negative undertone that Percy has in his thoughts, and that doesn't really shift. And I love that even when in this life-threatening or he feels like very scary, stressful moment, he's still the same person. Um, the transformation was also wonderfully described, but it does make me wonder if, like, once you know that you are a demigod, do you have an easier time seeing through the mist? Like, if Percy had known that he was a demigod, if Percy had known that he was the son of Poseidon, 
would he have had would he have noticed Miss Dodds much earlier? Because he does meet Mrs. Dodds again and is able to see her, but I don't know if she is necessarily using the mist to cover herself from them or from him anymore. We also know that some demigods can control the mist, but can any of them actually do that to the level of monsters is something that I'm wondering. Like Thalia, I believe, says, don't remember what book it is. It has to be book three again. But I believe she says that she has some level of control over the mist and can make mortals think and see things that don't that aren't actually there. But can a demigod, uh, I would assume that if any, it would be a demigod of Hecate, but can any of them manipulate the mist to this level of hiding their own physical features as, as well as a monster like Mrs. Dodds could? So page 13 is all about the first interaction, uh, the first fight in the series where Percy receives Riptide, though he does not know that it is Riptide yet, and Brunner takes this gamble on Percy being able to defend himself from a very dangerous monster, and Percy, through nothing but sheer luck, does. He manages to slice Mrs. Dodds. Perhaps Mrs. Dodds or Electo was not thinking that Percy was going to fight back, that he'd be too scared, that he wouldn't be thinking straight, and so he just she just lunges at him. Percy slices her, and Mrs. Dodds' Electo turns to dust. The first thing that I really want to talk about, I guess, in this is... This is definitely a reference to the saying, the pen is mightier than the sword, um, with both having life-saving applications, especially in the House of Hades, but I've always loved this idea of, like, it is a pen that can transform into a sword as somebody who loves writing as a writer and as required in being a writer. I love the play on this idea, the play on this reference of the pen being mighty, mightier than the sword. The other thing is that it's also the first mention of Celestial Bronze as a monster-killing weapon. He does not know it is Celestial Bronze yet, but he does note that it is a bronze sword that is able to, quote-unquote, kill the monsters, though Percy doesn't actually understand how it works. But this is where the title of the chapter, I Vaporize My Pre-Algebra Teacher, comes from, because Miss Dodds was a sandcastle in a power fan. She exploded into yellow powder, vaporizing on the, spar uh, on the spot, leaving nothing but the smell of sulfur and a dying screech and a chill of evil in the air, as if those two glowing red eyes were still watching me. They are, because we know that the monsters do not die forever. They are reborn in Tartarus, and they are being reborn fast. I also wonder, Miss Dodds comes back again quickly. And so, do you think that Hades has the authority to speed up a monster's rebirth? Or do you think that... Furies just in general have quick respawn times. And finally, the last thing I'm going to say is that the Furies are definitely on Fraud Watch. The fact that Percy untrained was able to kill a Fury that put Thalia on the back end and where she had to sacrifice herself to protect Luke and Annabeth is just... I love the Percy Jackson series with all my heart. But let's say the power scaling in this series is super, super inconsistent. But that does not change the fact that I still think that these are some of the best stories I've read. So we're going to let it slide. But they're definitely on Fraud Watch and they will unfortunately continue to be on Fraud Watch throughout this book. Because they do not do a good job when it comes to combat. So Percy, after defeating the Furies, comes, like, leaves the scene quickly running back to the bus trying to get support. Thunder booms overhead. We know that... You know, Zeus is probably furious that this did not work out, 
But this is where we learn about an extreme power of the mist. Because he gets back to the bus. He tries to explain to Grover what happened. Grover, of course, is actually lying to him, but says, there's never been a miss, uh, there's never been a Mrs. Dodds here. We know that Chiron is also lying to him, where he says, um, Percy, there is no Mrs. Dodds on this trip. As far as I know, there's never been a Mrs. Dodds at Yancey Academy. Are you feeling all right? We know that those two know and they're lying. What is crazy about the mist is the level of mental manipulation that is able to be done because every student on the trip believes that a teacher named Mrs. Kerr had been their pre-algebra teacher and not Mrs. Dodds. And once again, this makes me ask the question of how powerful is the mist? And secondly, can a demigod ever manipulate the mist to this level? Or is this something uniquely reserved for monsters? So please, in the comments or in the review section, leave your thoughts on that below. I would really like to know what you think regarding the mist's powers and limitations. And with that mystery of what is going on, why does no one remember Mrs. Dodds? Who is Mrs. Kerr? Why is, why, are, why is Mr. Brunner and Grover lying to Percy about something that they know? The first chapter of the Percy Jackson series comes to a close. And with that, so does our episode. If you enjoyed this video, if you enjoyed me breaking down the chapters, please be sure and like, comment, subscribe. If you are listening to this podcast on audio platforms, please be sure to uh, give it five stars, leave us a review, interact in whatever way the platform allows you to do. It will really help this show grow. I'm super excited to be starting it. I love talking about the works of Rick Riordan. And if you enjoyed, please be sure to check me out on my YouTube channel at Jared Shaw or on Twitter at Jared Shaw. And with that, have, the, have a great rest of your day. Peace.